I think that when I started Revelation, it did not occur to me that Revelation was written by a guy who was held in a copper mine as a slave as punishment. He wrote it as a slave. They understand the book of Revelation differently than we do because it was written by somebody that understands them better than we do. So I, I wanted you to see that while we read these words today and to hear the words of John, that the words of Revelation are not allegorical. They are not, they, to just say it's allegory, I mean, I know people say that, but that's not what the book says. The book says it's a prophecy. But to, to strip it away of that strips away the hope of it. The, the brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Nepal and in India and South Sudan and in Libya and Tangier up on the northern coast of Morocco, they read this differently because they read it more like John read it because that's who they are. They are slaves that have been held against their will. So with that in mind, we're going to open the book of Revelation chapter 1 today. And as you're getting there. If you haven't found it yet, that's kind of on you, if I'm being honest. I, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's the book of Revelation. It's not that hard to find. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to say this, though, and, and I've said this the first two services, but it's important for me to continue to say this. The book of Revelation, okay, is full of mystery, okay? It's full of adventure. It's, it's full of kind of maybe scary things, whatever, but it is not a hard book to understand, the idea that it's a hard book to understand, I think, is a lie of the enemy, and it keeps us from reading it. And I want to show you why it's not a hard book to understand by just giving you the overview of the book itself. In Revelation chapter 1, in verse 19, he says, this is John, he is writing from this island called Patmos, and he says that the Lord had appeared to him, and this is what Jesus told him to do, write Therefore, what you have seen, write what is now and write what will take place later. That's what Jesus told John to write. That is the outline of this book from front to back. And if you take this book at face value, if you take this book as the way that the author said that it is, it makes it easy to understand. Write those things which you have seen, number one. And in chapter one, right around verse 12, I turned and I saw Jesus. Chapter one. Write those things which you have seen. Who did he see? What did he see? He sees Jesus. Okay? And then he says, write those things which are. Those things which are now. And chapters two and three are these seven letters to seven churches. They are seven letters that were written to seven specific churches, okay? Each church got their own letter, but each church got all the letters, okay? And not only did they get all the letters, they also got individuals inside of them that got messages from it. Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the church, you know, uh, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. They all got it. They each got a copy of it. We've got it. And not only that, I believe that prophetically they speak of the seven epics of church history that start with the early church in Acts and ends with the church age that we are in today, seven of them in order, a prophetic statement buried inside of these seven letters. And, and if you, you're like, yeah, I don't know about that, Darren. The Midweek Podcast. How many of you guys heard the Midweek Podcast this week? Two of you. Okay. So, uh, can I encourage you to stick this into your list of things to listen to? 
I spent 35, 40 minutes interviewing Grady Pickett, our friend who lives in northern Iraq, okay? Now, when he talks about the prophecy of the Tigris River that will run dry and an army that will march across it. Never in the history of the Tigris River has it run dry, except that Turkey has multiple dams that can block off the Tigris River and make it run dry. They have that power militarily. It exists right now. It would be the equivalent of the Mississippi River running dry. Like, that's just one of the things that Grady's talking about. And Grady's talking about it because Grady lives like 20 minutes from Nineveh. Like the Nineveh, you know what I'm saying? Like, like we go to Spring Hill and, and go to like get a burger. He goes to Nineveh. Of course, that got a little confused when ISIS and that whole thing. But Nineveh still exists. Like that is where he's at. So hearing it from his perspective is, is a fascinating experience. So anyway, so write those things which are the church, the church age right now, and then write those things which are to come. And that word are to come is the word in Greek, meta, tauta, and that is important. And here's why it is important, because in chapter four, it opens with the words after this, it's the word meta, tauta. After what? After these things, after chapter two and three, two and three comes before chapter four, always has, always will. After these things, after the church age, you see chapter four. And by the way, chapter four, all the way to chapter 22 is the metatauta. It is what is to come. Have I lost anybody yet? It's okay. You can speak up because I lose myself a lot in this. So metatauta, what is to come. Chapters four and five, I heard this voice come up here. The church shows up in heaven in chapters four and five. You'll never see the church again in Revelation until you get to chapter 21 and 22. They disappear from the book of Revelation until chapter 21 and 22. So chapters four and five, the church is in heaven. Chapters six through 19, that is what we would call the great tribulation period. It's been called many things, the time of Jacob's trouble, pouring out the wrath of God uh, on all flesh. It is the thing that, uh, re, uh, that resuscitated Kirk Cameron's career and killed Nicolas Cage's career. So you, it's all right there in chapters six through 19. You got to be careful saying something like that in Nashville. Some of y'all might know them. Um, chapter 6 through 19, Great Tribulation Period. Chapters 20, 21, 22. Man, Jesus returns. There's a, a, a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. There, the Satan is set just a little bit longer. He's set free. Chapter 22, Jesus is literally back. The Garden of Eden is restored. Death and Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. We live happily ever after. The book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. If you follow the outline, if you follow it at face value for what it is. With that in mind, let's read verse 9 of chapter 1. This is John writing to his church. John was a pastor, man. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And again, we'll talk about that later. 
And so I turned and I saw a voice, the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. This, by the way, is imagery straight out of the temple. Lampstands, lights, menorahs, Jesus, the priest with the sash standing in the temple. John is making a statement here. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. That's priestly language. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And you might remember some of these from Isaiah, from Daniel, from Ezekiel. These are all pictures and images used to describe Yahweh, God. But here they're describing Yeshua. It's a very bold statement that Jesus is God. His hair was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. Now when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. What a great thought to think that each church has, its, has an angel assigned to it. Isn't that a wild thought? I really need our angel to go to Williamson County Codes Department. <laughs> you remember, was it Daniel? Like where he, the archangel Michael, I tried to get to you, but I was withstood by the prince of Persia. Like, I feel like the prince of Williamson County is withstanding our angel from getting our codes uh, assigned here. And if you work for Williamson County Codes, I mean no disrespect. Suddenly I'm realizing I'm saying that out loud. The seven stars are the seven angels and the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's, that's powerful. That's God's word. So let's pray and see what he might say to us through that. Jesus, we give you ourselves and our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak through me today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak instead of me today. <laughs> that your Holy Spirit is alive and well and you're speaking to all of us. Lord, what a beautiful thought that we have our own high priest now. Nobody in this room even needs me in between. They especially don't need me in between you and them. We all have access to your throne room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John writes this. He has got Nero has been the emperor uh, Titus, Domitian, he's about to have a guy named Nerva. That's kind of a cool name, huh? Like, it, it, it's basically a parade of nut jobs, of, of emperors. I mean, you can read the history, and every single one of them is a nut job. And they're causing angst and, and consternation, and they're especially abusing and assaulting and persecuting 
Christians. And, and I was reading that and I was struck. Jesus tells John, I'm the first and the last. Which means that before there was Nero, right? Before there was Caesar Augustus, okay? Before there was a Roman Empire, before there was a Persian Empire, before there was a Babylonian Empire, before there were any of the empires, I was there. I'm the first. And after the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the rise of the European Empire, the rise of America, the rise of Asia, I'm still going to be there. There's a lot of peace in that idea. We went to Italy last year. We got to do a wedding, which was so fun. Thank you, Kelly Savage, for letting us do that wedding. But we're in Italy and in Rome, and we are walking around on the ruins of the emperors that were killing Christians. We did the same thing in Israel. To put that differently... We spent just a few bucks to walk on their grave. They're gone. They're long gone. But the kingdom of God is still going on and on and on and on. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega. Jesus, the first and the last. And when I look at our political situation, look, I'm not even talking about the political situation in Nigeria or in Morocco or Uganda or Sudan. I'm just going to say our political situation in the United States. And I look at where we are right now, and I think this is literally, I'm about to offend both groups of people this morning. I'm looking at this thinking, this is what I get to choose from to vote for? Like, this is my option? Like this? And if you're older, this isn't maybe, you're like maybe offended by this, but the young people, you're like, how is it possible that these are the two choices I have? Right, Hope? (laughs) (laughs) Before there was Donald Trump, before there was Barack Obama, before there was George Bush, before there was Bill Clinton, before there was another George Bush, before there was Ronald Reagan, before there was Jimmy Carter, before there was Richard Nixon, I mean, I could keep going. There was Jesus, the first. And whoever wins this, he won't be the last. Jesus will. And I take an enormous amount of peace in that. Because our proclivity right now is to say, well, then what do I do? Is it about the ballot box? Because that's what we've been told. And by the way, that's not something new. right? Anybody remember the 80s? Like the voter guides and the the rise of the religious right? We meant really, really well. If we could just get our guy elected, then we can stop abortion. And it didn't happen. And on the other hand, if we just get our guy elected, then we can increase this we could do, and the truth is, is the voting, I'm not, I don't want to diminish voting at all. I feel like I'm being a nihilist and I don't mean to come off that way at all. What I do mean to come off as, that is not our ultimate. Absolutely, pray, seek the Lord, walk into the ballot box and vote how the Lord is leading you and know that whoever that is, he is not the last, she is not the last, Jesus is. In the hands of the seven stars that he held in his hands. I'm voting for Jesus. 
More than that, he voted for you. The doctrine of election, guess who he voted for? You. Doesn't mean we back off. Doesn't mean we don't vote. Doesn't mean we have opinions. Doesn't mean that we don't say in Pakistan, we're going to fight and we're going to try to get people freed from slavery. Right? We're, we're going to do those things because that's what Jesus would have us to do. But what we get to do here is, I would say John actually gives us a great playbook right here of how do we respond, how do we live, and how do we act in a culture where we don't know what to do anymore. Doesn't the world feel like it's upside down? Doesn't it feel like I don't even know what to be outraged about anymore? Like, there are legitimate problems in the world and it, everyone demands our outrage. Absolutely. So what do we do? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've not seen Washington Post, New York Times, Fox News, not a single one of them mentioned anything about 100,000 people in Pakistan held in slavery. Not a one. Okay? Now, is that their fault or is it they've only got so much time for your outrage? There's only so many places I can invest in. So I would say to you, what Jesus did for John, what he would ask and invite of us, is instead of investing our hearts and our lives in our outrage, to instead put our hearts, what John did here, he, and this, oh man, it's 12, and here's what he did. This is how John, John had nut jobs, okay, legitimate nut jobs that were in charge. Domitian was, was crazy. Nero was literally drilling a hole in the sides of, of the Christians and pouring molten steel into them, okay? Not good stuff. And what did John do? What did the church do? How did they survive that? Right here in these nine verses, it says that A, he was, he might have been on Patmos, but he was in the spirit, okay? He might have been surrounded by water, but he was surrounded by Jesus. And he might have been existing as a slave, but he was living as a son. He was on Patmos, but he was in the spirit. It says uh, in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In the spirit, it doesn't mean that he was like walking around and suddenly phew, I'm in a trance and now I'm going to write this prophecy. No, in the spirit, and actually the way the language is, he came to be in the spirit. It was a part of his life, a discipline that he put in practice in his life was to be in the spirit. And what does that look like in our lives? Galatians 5, 1, 2, 3, all the way down, 13, 14, 15, 16. In the spirit is rejecting religion, rejecting law, and embracing grace in what he has done in your lives. Because if it's about Galatians 5, 1, go there later. It's for freedom that he set you free. You know these passages, these words. But he goes on to say that in verse 13, you're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh. He also says, then don't use your, uh, this to like, enforce other people's rules and regulations that you have on you. He says uh, this, in fact, in verse, uh, verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out because you're going to destroy it by each other. And right now in our culture, if we are not walking in the spirit, if we're walking in the law, and the law says that I believe this is how you're supposed to do it, and if you're not doing it the way that I am supposed to do it, I think you're supposed to do it, then you are wrong, and it's just Pharisee 101, and we begin to devour each other. And that is true whether it's our medical advice, it's true whether it's our, our uh, religious advice, and the, the, the internet is completely full of that. 
I mean, watch this afternoon. Someone's going to say, if you're not wearing a mask, you are killing grandma. The other one is saying, if you are not, if you are not wearing a mask, then, uh, or if you are wearing a mask, you're just a virtue signaling. You sh- shame, 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 shame on both sides. That is the law that is not walking in the spirit. And walking in the spirit says, I actually don't know what the real thing is here, but I'm going to walk in the spirit and trust that he'll figure that out for me. What is he leading me to do? Because that's what he says, you're going to devour, you're going to kill each other. Satan ain't going to do it, you're going to kill each other, Galatians 5, 16, 15. And he says, verse 16, so what do I say? Walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And what is the desire of the flesh? Fear. Fear is I need to control you. Fear is if I don't do this, then my whole country is going to fall apart. Fear is the thing that is CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and Breitbart. They're all built on one business model, and that is fear. If I can make you scared enough, you'll click on it, and I get paid, and that is the desires of the flesh. And I'm just saying, that is a way to live your day, and you're going to be miserable. But if you walk after the Spirit, that's what John did. He says, I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on Tuesday, on Thursday. And I would invite you, because, I mean, if you think about it, uh, how's it working out for you? I mean, how's your day going? When your kids come home, wouldn't it be better? I'm just going to float this out there. Wouldn't it be better when you, you get home from work or the kids get home from whatever we do, whatever we call school now, because I'm not 100% sure what that is anymore, and it's not, oh, God, be careful, mom's in a mood, it's, be careful, mom's in the spirit. <laughs> Look out, dad's been in the spirit. Doesn't it feel like a better way to live your life than dad's been on Twitter and he is furious? I mean, Tyler gets how sick are you of me spouting facts off about this or that or the other? Scale of one to 10. 12? Yeah. <laughs> And it didn't, how much have I changed anything? I mean, I'm thinking of running for Congress, but other than that. (laughs) Look, walk in the spirit. John was in the spirit and he in the spirit got revelation. He got inspiration enough to lead seven churches to survive a crushing time in their life. He wasn't just in the spirit, but he was surrounded by Jesus himself. I love this idea of the sound of rushing waters. How many of you guys sleep with a white noise machine? Okay, more than you would think, but not as many as you would hope. That should be covered in premarital counseling, honest to goodness. Do you know what I mean? Like, because Shannon and I, thankfully, we both, got, we both grew up very poor, which meant no air conditioning, which meant we had to have a fan just to stay alive. That meant that we needed a fan every night. So, gosh, I don't know, 25 fans we bought over the years, box fans on, at Walmart when you go on vacation because you forgot to bring your fan, and now you need to... Of course, now they have white noise apps. This, here's what I'm saying. The sound of rushing water, what does the sound of rushing water do? It's calming by the beach, by a stream, by a river, and it drowns out all the rest of the noise. The voice of Jesus, I turned around to hear, and the voice of Jesus was like the sound of rushing water. It calms me, it soothes me, and it shuts off the chaos from my life. And the third and the last thing that he did was he did those things in his identity. He might have been existing as a slave, but that guy was living as a son. When, in, when Isaiah comes into the presence of God and, and he falls over as is dead, I, God sends an angel to touch Isaiah and say, get back up, you're okay, you walk it off. But not here. 
Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, get up, you're okay. And you know why that is? Because look at the, the language, his eyes are like fire. If you ever look directly at a sun, don't do that, the eclipse, right? You'll go blind. But if you were to look directly into the sun and directly into it, you'll never see anything again because your retinas will burn out. It will blind you. Looking directly into the purity and the fire of God will blind you and kill you unless you have been made righteous and holy like Jesus was righteous and holy. Every description here is a description of Jesus as Yahweh, white as snow, eyes like fire, feet like bronze in a furnace. It's all about Jesus being God. And for the first time in scripture that I'm aware of, a man looked on the face of God and didn't die, he lived. Get up, John, you're okay. You and I can stand in the presence of God himself as sons and daughters, as a kingdom of priests. That's the language he says here, I've made you a priest. You know what that means? In those days, the priest, I had to send a priest in to get them to talk to God for me. And I, I, if I hey, hey, when you're in there, ask God this or ask that. And how frustrating are you when you get out and the priest like, you didn't ask him? That's the only thing I needed you to ask him. You forgot to ask him. I don't have to do any of that anymore because I can stand in his presence like John did. You can stand in his presence like John does because that's what the power of the gospel is, is that I no longer am a slave in a brick factory to fear. I am a child of God. The image of, that we saw at the beginning of this of a slave putting his thumbprint down, paying his debt in full, a debt that he couldn't afford, a debt that there was no way he could have ever done, not even, not even close, was paid in full by somebody who loved him so much and it wasn't us, it's Jesus and he did that for you and I. Get out of the brick factory, get up off your knees and stand as children of God because no matter what's happening in this world. And who knows how this goes? I don't know. But I know this. In a world that seems upside down, Jesus is right side up. And in a world that we don't know the future, we know the one who holds it. And this election will not have the last word. The next election will not have the last word. Okay? The next dictator, the next rise of the next empire, all that stuff that can get me kind of wound up None of them are going to be the last. That's why that song, I don't know, it just wrecked me last week for a thousand generations. I mean, Michaela, you just mopped the floor with me last week. Just, ugh. Do you know how long a thousand generations is? That's 70,000 years. May the Lord bless you and keep you and your children and your children for a thousand generations. That's eternity. That's where we're going. That's why this book is not a scary book. This book is a book of hope. It's why this book is a book that is a book that blesses us, not curses us. And right now, it's the only hope we have is him. Because I tell you this, I'm old enough to know. We've been around this rodeo before. I don't know how it all turns out here, but I know how it all turns out there and that Jesus will return and he will take it back. And all I can say is when he comes, I just want to be part of a church of end time warriors. Wasn't there a rap group? Come on, someone. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, ATW. I want to be the end time warriors, but like that are out there freeing slaves from slavery in Pakistan, that are feeding children in Nepal who are locked in poverty, that are going and rescuing orphans and widows. Like That's the battle that I want to be a part of. That's the battle that he allowed and invited us into in Matthew 24. Speaking of the end times, did you feed them? Did you clothe them? Did you visit them in prison? If the world is going to be upside down, there's going to be people who are going to need your help, my help, and as long as we live in a country where we have excess, by God, we should use it and we get to use it as a gift to the nations to be a part of his end time war. Doesn't that get exciting? Good. It's going to be a good year. There's never been a better time to be alive than right now to step into that. Stand up. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, Jesus, and time warriors. I can't even believe I remember that, Lord. I'm so old, Jesus. Come back. <laughs> Jesus, give us wisdom on how to do this. Lord, we pray for the Andreas family, for the Williams family, for those that are literally right now tasting freedom for the first time. But Lord, I pray that more than the freedom from a brick factory, that they experience the freedom from sin. That's what we want. That's what we all need here today. Thank you for that. We love you, Jesus. We bless you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Love you.